0: Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Today's guest is someone who is incredibly special and incredibly special to me. I am talking to Charlotte Clymer, who is not only a great inspiration, but she's also my great friend. We talk about her personal story, her time in the military, why she decided to come out as trans publicly on Twitter in 2017, and the importance of the Equality
1: Act. My name is Charlotte Clymer, and I'm a proud transgender woman. Sorry, not sorry.
0: On October 15th, uh, 2017, when I sent out the Me Too tweet, uh, what people may not know is that the screen grab that I used in that tweet, Charlotte sent me on Twitter and she said to me, uh, this is going around on Facebook. It's interesting. Uh, See if you want to do something with it.
1: So <laughs> And you, you sure as hell did.
0: <laughs> so I when I think about when I think about everything that we've accomplished in in the last couple of uh almost couple of years with Me Too, um my thought always goes to you, Charlotte. Oh
1: thank you for that.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your history and yourself? Because it's it's truly not only fascinating, but there's so much intersectionality there that I think uh, needs to be explored.
1: There's a lot going on. Um, so I was raised in the South, uh, in Central Texas, from two lines of, you know, uh, basically poor white folks. Uh, one side is from Kentucky, the other side is from Oklahoma, and... You know, growing up, there, there's a lot going on, right? I mean, you know, there's poverty. Uh, there's a lot of abuse in our family. Um, and in the midst of all that, I was trying to figure out, you know, who I was as a person. Um, the biggest thing was gender identity. And I, I, I knew from a very early age, like we're talking three or four, like my earliest sense of consciousness that I was different. Um, but I didn't know how to explain it. I didn't know how to articulate the the uh, the feeling very well, or the words, or the vocabulary, but I knew that I wanted to be a girl, and I didn't know uh, uh, how to talk to my uh, talk to the adults around me about that because there wasn't really a space to do any kind of sort of uh, empathetic uh, conversation, let alone on something as complex, especially in the mid '90s. Like, uh, how did that manifest
0: know. itself in like your daily existence, like? You know, here, probably dumb question number one. Did you play with dolls?
1: I didn't. No, I, in fact, what I would do was, you know, I stayed away from stereotypical girl activities, um, which I thought might, you know, be like, um, might betray me in some way, right? uh, Or betray what was going on inside. But, it's funny. I would look for ways to—I I don't know. There's, there's no other way to say this. Like, get my fix, so to speak, to express myself in a healthy way, um, without tipping other people off that uh, that I am, you know, transgender or or the the feeling I had that I couldn't describe back then. Um, and so I would do things like, you know, I remember being very much in the Spice Girls in fourth and fifth grade, and I, I look at it now and I'm thinking, you know, what a what a naive little kid. Uh, to being to very feminine music back then and, you know, believe that others wouldn't be tipped off, that something was different about you, right? Um, But I couldn't... I just didn't know how to uh, both protect myself and also relieve some of the anxiety inside over my identity. It, It was very hard.
0: So you fought it and you... Is that what you did? Did you fight it?
1: I did. I did. In fact, what I did was I tried to almost beat it out of myself, um, you know, without getting too intense, uh, some of the more, uh, I would say healthy things I did, uh, you know, I, I played a lot of sports. Um, I got really into military stuff. Um, I would do things that were stereotypically masculine because I felt it was a way to maybe cleanse myself of whatever this weird feeling was, um, um, that made me want to be a girl and what I found, again and again, is that it just didn't work, it didn't go away. Mm. So it's funny, when I hear that these social conservatives who claim that someone can be converted uh, from being transgender, uh, let alone you know sexual orientation, I, I just laugh, because that-, that was my childhood, is trying to essentially self-convert uh, these feelings that were internal, and, and nothing, nothing worked. People want to talk about transgender, and I always say you have to start by talking about gender. That's really the sort of critical piece in the word. I found it really helpful to think about gender in a few different distinct categories. Gender identity, how you define your gender and how you see yourself. Gender expression, the different ways that we present or perform gender through our actions, our dress, and our demeanor, and biological sex or anatomical sex, the physical characteristics that make up our body that in many people's minds, Equal gender. The traditional gender model doesn't actually fit large numbers of people. And we're really given two choices. We can either change the people or we can change the model.
0: So do you think, you know, because I'm raising a girl and a boy right now, right? And I'm trying to pinpoint the time in their lives that they had had an understanding of the concept of gender even. And... I think that it's been only within the last year so my son is seven so only within the last year that he really understands the um, the difference and of course we're we're able to raise kids now so much differently than like when when I grew up where whereas you know now Milo could have his nails painted and it's just you know a, a form of expression or Bella can play just. You know, as much sports as Milo plays on the weekends and there's not these sort of gender stereotypes that we're raising our kids in. And I wonder if if there was a moment in your childhood where you understood what gender was and perhaps felt that you didn't fit into the norm of what that was identified
1: as so it, it it's hard to explain, and I'm really glad you asked that, but you know, I don't speak for all trans people um as you know uh, I can only speak for my own experience, but for me in childhood uh there were certain moments when you know like I wanted to be a princess i remember I remember vividly uh around six or seven wanting to you know be like a disney princess um and wear these gorgeous dresses and um, kind of dressed that way. I wanted to do things like art and sing. And um, a lot of these childhood activities that we, we tend to associate, or at least in the South that we tend to tended to associate with girls. Um, and it really annoyed me internally, that I would see, you know, for example, my sister and a lot of my female peers, my age, engage in these activities that I couldn't do, uh, because the adults around me told me that, you know, that wasn't appropriate for boys to do. Um, so, yeah, I would say I would say over childhood, it was this it, it was almost like this snowball effect. You know, I, I started to notice over time, like, oh, my God, I really am just not very happy with being a boy. <laughs> and I, I don't think it was until my preteen years, maybe 11 or 12, that it all kind of suddenly hit me that I was extremely uncomfortable in my own body, and not in a normal teenage way, because it's a very healthy teenage thing to, you know, uh, have some kind of body shaming or not, like, be happy with the way you look. For me, it was literally, I do not want to have this body. I don't have. To, I don't want to have a penis. I don't want to have, you know, uh, muscles or anything like that. I, I wanted to have a female body. Um, and it scared me how present that was in my mind all the time. And was what was also confusing, was that you know from a, from you know an early age I knew I was attracted to women I was attracted to girls, and so that even that was even more confusing over time trying to figure out how that intersected and in reality it doesn't right because we know that gender identity is not the same as sexual orientation they're very two separate things, um, so it was it was grueling trying to understand what it meant to have these feelings inside and, and express them later on in life.
0: I would actually physically get ill all the time when I started to develop breasts and I started to actually get to a place where my body was becoming more woman-like and I didn't really understand it.
1: I wasn't comfortable in the assigned role of being a boy. I was born and I, because I had a s- certain genital, you know, situation <laughs> I was um, it was like you that's a boy and I ne- but I never felt that um, and I never I never I don't think I was ever masculine in any way. Each of these aspects when we're talking about sex, gender role, gender identity or sexual orientation is some sort of spectrum or scale, something vast and explosive as opposed to narrow and contracted.
0: So you go to high school where it's all about, you know, gender and sex and sexuality and you're supposed to start dating and, you know, all of the the madness. How did you cope with, you know, just high school? I mean high school is hard enough as it is, right? Like how did you put everything in its place? Did you just ignore it? Did you try to suppress it?
1: I did. I tried to suppress it. And I tried to uh, kind of reconcile what was going on internally with, you know, cultural expectations in high school. And I got sloppy, right? So, you know, I remember I remember this one day, I think our choir went on some field trip somewhere, I think to the mall. And people split off into their little groups. And I went with the girls. I went with like four or five girls, Um and I remember, you know, they were cool with it, except for one one of the girls. And I remember her remarking, like, why are you with us? Like, why why aren't you, like, going with the boys? Because it wasn't, I wasn't hitting on them. I just wanted to be one of the girls. But I couldn't say that out loud. And, of course, you know, um, it wasn't like they knew what was going on. But I, I, I noticed that in that awkward teenage way, it manifested itself into not being smart about the way I interacted. Um, Because if I were smart, I would have been hanging out with the boys all the time, right? Uh, Going lifting weights or, you know, doing whatever the hell boys do. Um, I just, it just did not speak to me at all. And and also, I found that when I was in those male environments, I was extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't get on with the performative nature of it. Like the locker room talk and things like that i just I just couldn't do it
0: now was there a moment where you were like, maybe this being uncomfortable in my own body is that I'm gay?
1: Yes, yeah, in fact i thought I thought very briefly in high school before I knew, yeah, because we didn't have like comprehensive sex education right we we had the basics like here's how people have sex um you know here here are the ways that you are supposed to have safe sex, but we didn't discuss like you know, anything outside of heterosexual, sexual relations, we certainly didn't discuss gay sex, we didn't talk about um, gender identity, Uh, it was boys in this classroom, girls in this classroom, and here's what sex is, and here's how not to fuck up, right? Um, And I recall, maybe junior year of high school, thinking, you know, maybe I am bisexual, maybe I just haven't, you know, realized that I'm attracted to boys yet and i I didn't come out as bisexual, certainly, but it was one of these things where that was the best way I could rationalize what was going on internally because I knew in our in a very myopic way, and i of course, I don't at all think this is okay, but in my conservative central Texas environment, you know we perceived gay men as being far more effeminate and being part of girl culture, so to speak, and so the best way I could rationalize what was going on with me was to Just tell myself, oh, I must be bisexual, and at some point it'll kick in, that I'll be interested in boys, and that's the only way to explain what's going on right now. So it's kind of terrifying and confusing all at the same time, way more than, you know, the normal amount for uh, uh, most teenagers. It was confusing because I didn't have language yet. I didn't really have the language to define how I saw myself. I didn't know how to articulate what I was feeling in rebuttal to the people who are charged with my care.
2: I went to the therapist and I internalized all this shame around wearing a dress and being very feminine. And so I was in such intense denial. And so at the same time that everyone was like, yeah, Jonas, you're a boy. Um, they were telling me I was too young to understand what gender I was.
1: You know, as a young person, you have not much, you don't have much agency or decision making. That's right, right. <laughs> and so you just go wherever people pick you up and take you and yeah. say that this is the way the world is. Uh-huh. And something internal inside of me told me constantly mm-hmm. that what they're saying is wrong.
2: But you know, I went up to my parents and I was like, listen, I've, for a couple of years, I've tried this whole boy thing. I think it's lovely. Um, <laughs> it's just not me. Uh-huh.
0: So, what did you do? You joined the military.
1: I did. Yeah. Of course. I played as high one school does. football, uh, uh, graduated high school. And, you know, the biggest thing for me in joining the military was because I felt patriotic and I wanted to serve and I disagreed with the war in Iraq, but I still felt, I don't know, this really corny sense of honor to serve in the military. Um, But very much present in my mind was maybe this is what will finally do the trick. Maybe I spend three years in the military and it beats, you know, out of my body, this longing to be a woman. Hmm. And it did not work. It just didn't.
0: <laughs> but did your patriotism change?
1: Yes, yes, I think it did. It became more nuanced. Um, you know, my time in the military was one of eye opening. Uh, I, I I started to question a lot of what it means to be an American and be a patriot uh, because at the time it felt like you know patriotism means serving your country regardless of of, of what's what's present. Uh, and going on, you know, because that's what that's what conservative culture is, having a blind allegiance to what you believe are American values or what are taught uh, as American values to you. When I got in the military, I found that no one was really buying into the same thing. It felt like I, I would be in my unit, and it felt like guys had joined up to for the bonus or for the GI Bill afterward, um, and maybe they did. You know, they maybe they did feel a sense of pride in America, but. You know, as far as the military ethos that we're all told about, it wasn't really all of that present. Um, And it was kind of heartbreaking in that way. Um, I remember near the end of my service, I started getting into feminist theory. um, And it started making me question everything. And of course, that's where the gender identity popped up. Because as soon as I read about transgender people, right, I thought, well, shit. And I, you know, I got so scared, Alyssa. The first time I saw that, I got so scared that I just ignored it, because I, I knew that's not, you know, in my own mind, I was like, that's not a rabbit hole that I want to go down. I'm just going to ignore that that exists. But once I got out of the military and I started exploring it more, I realized, well, yeah, this, this is it. This is clearly who I am, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing a very good job of addressing it. My
0: entire life, I've challenged the idea of gender. And after being asked that question on the playground, I started asking myself, well, what gender am I? Until that point, I never really thought about gender. To me, it was just a ward or a placard on a bathroom. I never thought twice before playing any game or putting on any shirt. I just did me. Nevertheless,
1: I began to get older, and consequently, kids started making fun of me. I remember spending countless hours crying before bed, asking my mother why I couldn't wear
0: this one special pink shirt to school. And her response was, I
1: don't want you to get hurt. I think a really big misconception is that transition happens overnight. And the reality is, is that transition is a very long process.
0: The biggest hurdle to being a fully integrated member of society for trans folks is simply just to not die young. I'm 26, um, and I fight every day to one day live to see 35, which is the average age for a black trans woman in the South.
2: I am concerned about the young trans person growing up in, um, say for instance, my home state,
1: South Carolina, Um, growing up in a state that doesn't see you as a human being. We just want the same treatment and respect that everyone
2: else gets from the get-go.
1: So,
0: when did you first accept that you were transgender?
1: I think the first time I admitted to anybody that I was transgender was uh late 2014. I remember being my, my in my therapist's office.
0: What drove you to go to therapy in the first place
1: so so i had I had been medically retired from the military um, and as part of you know the medical retirement um the Army uh, paid for uh, psychiatric services and therapy. You know, so they paid for medication, and they paid for uh, weekly therapy with uh, you know, a medical professional at Walter Reed. Mm-hmm. And so I started seeing this person weekly, um, and it was late, 20, late 2014 that we were discussing the reason that I was in therapy was for childhood abuse because you know I, I experienced a lot of abuse when I was a kid. And so we were trying to work through that. But I remember coming in one day, and I said, "Look, I just got to tell you something." And I, I don't want to be difficult, but I just have to say this. And I swear to God, it took me about two or three minutes to actually get the words out. Wow. I would start to, I would start the sentence, and, I, and then I would say, "Like, I'm, I'm sorry, I just need a moment." And I felt so, I felt ridiculous because what I was afraid of was actually saying the words. You know, I feel like I'm a woman. I, I, th- I felt like my therapist was going to laugh at me.
0: Is it something that you planned on? doing before you went in that day, or did you just walk in the door I and did. you're like, okay.
1: I did. And I, I think I didn't have, uh, you know, a, a therapeutic plan. I didn't know what would happen next. Like maybe she would explain what I think, what I think I was mostly um, considering was I was afraid that she would say, no, you're not transgender um, or no, you're not a woman. Uh, and here's why. And and then I would just have to kind of live with that anxiety for the rest of my life because you know if this medical professional is saying that I'm not uh, transgender and then you know clearly um, this must be this must all be in my head uh, and then I'm a, I'm, and I'm and then I'm really at a loss right um, so getting out those those words it, it took like three or four minutes to get the words out and once I did I remember her being very patient. And saying, okay, well, tell me more. Let's, let's talk about this. And it ended up being a far better session than I thought it would be. We started getting the ball rolling. Her, in, her initial uh, concern when this happened was that, you know, maybe because of my childhood abuse with my mother, that this was kind of scrambling my, you know, perception of gender. And maybe I hated men or, or something else was going on. Right. Um, and it, now, that's not necessarily what she thought. But it was, you know, something she had to check off as, a, as, as you know, my, my therapist, right? She had right. to check that, that off as a complicating factor. And once she did, uh, it was about six months later, she formally diagnosed me with gender dysphoria. Um, and we kind of started going down this path of exploring, you know, what it would mean to come out, what would be the consequences, uh, and, and how to proceed best uh, in the future. That was a long process, by the way. And it didn't have to be a long process. I made it a long process because I was scared of what would happen next. So there were a good three years where we were talking about um, my own gender identity and, and how to best define it before I finally got the courage to come out as transgender.
0: Well, I know from being in therapy myself that there are those moments where you realize something about yourself or you were brave enough to say something about you know who you are. And that is always such a feeling of there's the fear that comes before it. And then there's almost a sense of euphoria after. So mm. I'm, I'm wondering if you felt that sense of accomplishment after, you know, that moment in 2014. Did you feel
1: relief? It's so complex. So, yes, in a way, I did feel relief uh, because finally I was opening up opening up to someone and letting them know that this was going on internally and that I needed some kind of guidance.
0: Did you start dressing um, like a woman immediately?
1: No, 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 no. 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 Um, I in fact I didn't buy any female clothing until I actually came out as transgender. Um, I I assiduously avoided um, you know any of that because I was I was scared of wearing female clothing and realizing that I couldn't go back because I don't want to go back. Right. And then you know it's it's this it's a sense of commitment that um, kind of forces you down the a very hard path. And I, I wasn't sure whether I was ready to go down that path, if, if at all. Um, so I felt relief when I told her, and I felt relief that she was understanding about it. And here's the weird thing I didn't anticipate. Once I told her, and once she validated that feeling, I spent the next three years being kind of resentful. Um, and I don't know how to best to describe it, but I... I was resentful that I finally knew that this internal feeling, it was okay to have. And yet I couldn't express myself in a healthy way as a woman. So I remember being at work um, and there were about four or five women my age that, you know, and they're great people, but they would go do things as girls. Like they would go like see a movie, um, you know, as a, as a girl's night out and they didn't invite me because I, I wasn't a girl. Uh, on the outside I wasn't presenting or you know identifying as that and I remember feeling very left out very lonely very angry I bet um, about just not having the ability to be my authentic self and so that three years was so incredibly hard
0: I was consistently challenged every single day about my gender somebody had to make some comment about it somebody had to say something about it Um, I was taunted by kids all the time. I actually met my first trans friend, and in the right moment, for whatever right reasons, he kind of just looked at me and said, so how do you feel about your gender? And I kind of broke down. For most people,
2: the sex they were assigned at birth is a pretty good match with their gender identity. For transgender people, it becomes clear very often at a young age, that um, their sense of themselves is different than what's reflected in the mirror, what's reflected when they look down at their bodies.
0: You know what I'm thinking about right now is the young people that don't have access to the therapist from the military that Mm -hmm. have to come to this realization, figure out what it means, figure out how to really feel it and live it, totally by themselves, without the uh-huh. guidance of a, of a medical professional helping them along the way, and how isolating that must feel.
1: The isolation and the strength. I mean, there is so much strength in these folks, uh, especially younger, y- younger folks, who realize, no, this is how I feel. This is how I'm going to start acting or expressing myself, and I don't need an authority figure to tell me that's okay, which is the opposite of me, right? I needed a therapist to tell me it was okay before I started doing it. And a lot of these younger folks, but what which happens I love, to the
0: people that don't have that authority figure that to tell them it's okay?
1: Right, like they just they stay in the closet, or uh, they they kind of repress these feelings, and you know maybe they get expressed in more unhealthy ways, uh, say drug abuse or alcoholism, um, maybe violence in some way. You know, a, a lot of this a lot of this leads to far worse problems for not only themselves but the folks around them. And it's incredibly tragic.
0: So, what made you decide to come out publicly? You can't. You came out publicly on Twitter. Uh, that's right, November 29th, ninth, twenty seventeen. I will never forget it.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well done. Yeah. Yep. That's right. I I remember. Um, so the previous year, uh, in the same week, you know, the the election happened, where you know Trump sold the election, and the same week I broke up with my longtime partner. Um, we'd been together for three years. We had been talking about a life together. And, you know, we had done all of the traditional planning. Like, we knew what we knew when we were going to get engaged. We knew when we were going to have kids, when we would name the kids. I mean, we had everything, you know, kind of laid out on paper. And there came a point when I realized that her parents just did not want her to be with me. I, I had confided to her that I was transgender. And I didn't know how best to negotiate that with our relationship. Um, that was also an incredibly hard conversation. And I remember at the time, the agreement that we that we made, or not the agreement, it wasn't like a deal that we made. It was more like, here's how we can stay together and do this. Um, I thought, oh, I'll just identify as gender nonconforming or non-binary. And that'll at least let me feel a little more authentic, a little more like myself. Without you know, going into um, full, full mode where I'm presenting as a woman, uh, which is what I wanted to do. That way I could, you know, meet her parents and I could be dressed as a male. Um, But at least I could still say, you know, I'm non-binary. I I don't, I don't identify as male. Um, And so when we broke up, I, I was very depressed for God, a year.
0: What was that conversation like? What did you actually say?
1: Oh gosh. Um
0: Do you remember what you said?
1: Yes. We it was clear that her parents and her family were making her choose between me and them. Um and she decided that she couldn't live without her family. Mm. And it was over it was primarily over this um i don 't think we actually said that out loud, right uh but it was kind of clear that her her mother especially was not comfortable with this at all um felt like it was you know very strange and um just just not something they wanted the family to deal with and you know her family also you know uh, supported Trump, and so that was another kind of sticking point there um, I'm, wondering if, I'm wondering if i'm
0: wondering if Trump being elected propelled you into coming out.
1: It did, it did, uh, because a year after a year after that week, um, it was you know the week I came out a few days few days before, and my thing had been okay. I'll just wait until Trump you know gets voted out of office and we have a Democratic president again, and then I'll feel comfortable with coming out. Right. But I got to tell you, Alyssa, I, I looked at the amount of time left <laughs> until that. And then I realize, who knows what's going to happen in twenty twenty. Yeah. yeah,
0: and and also, like was... and also, you don't seem like the type of person that would. I feel like you would feel that that not coming out and not being true to your own self would then hurt other people that maybe you could be helping with your story.
1: That's right. And I That's feel right, like, because... I
0: feel like at that point of Trump being elected. I think there was probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, but some sort of realization of like, wow, I need to do this now. I need to tell my story now.
1: That's absolutely right. And I think the thing that precipitated it was Danica Rome being elected in Virginia. Yeah. Uh, because when that happened, uh, that was a few weeks before I came out. It made me feel such pride and hope. And it made me think about the kids who are in Central Texas right now in conservative environments who don't have that person to look up to.
2: So you made history tonight, didn't you? No, no, we
1: made history tonight. We, people from Prince Lane County and Masses Park made history tonight.
2: Every person who's ever been singled out, who's ever been stigmatized, who's ever been the misfit, who's ever been the kid in the corner, who's ever needed someone to stand up for them when they didn't have a voice of their own because
1: there's no one else who was with them. This one's for you. And And I think that's what really just kind of finally pushed me out. Like, you know, I I thought, well, I can't wait any longer. And I don't think the world can wait any longer or or have, you know, transgender rights put on hold for this awful human being and this awful culture of hatred that he's perpetuating. And so I sat down at, you know, the computer and I just wrote out my coming out statement. There's so many barriers that stand in your way when that fog lifts and always on the terms of others. How would my partner still love me? How would anyone else ever date me? How could I pass as a woman? How can I afford a transition? How will I ever get a job? How will I feed myself? How will my friends react? How much am I risking my personal safety? How, 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 how? Then the election happened, and my partner and I broke up and went our separate ways. In the same week, a lot of instability for anyone. That was not the time, I thought, to venture into the great unknown. But this past summer, I asked myself what a good time would be when Trump is out of office, when I have enough money to transition. Just the existence of those questions in my brain made my skin crawl. And I considered my transgender friends, particularly trans folks of color. They're living out their true selves despite the immense obstacles. And while not perfect, at least they have something real. I want that. I considered the 27 transgender Americans murdered last year the most ever. And the Trump administration's attempted ban on transgender folks in the military. And the high rate of violence experienced by transgender women of color. And the fact that it's still legal in 28 states for companies to fire employees for being gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or queer.
0: In your opinion, how dangerous has this administration um, and the national
1: dialogue been for the transgender community? It's never been more dangerous. Never. And I I think that, you know, folks will say, "Well, what about the '50s or the '40s or the '30s?" I think we had a problem back then where it just wasn't being talked about. The problem now is that we have this person in the Oval Office and his buddy Mike Pence, and they are aggressively, aggressively on a daily basis going after the transgender community. Um, You know, and it 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 spans a wide array of stuff, right? So. For example, you know they ordered the uh, Department of, uh, of Education to turn away transgender students with civil rights complaints. Um, refused to have that recognized under Title IX. Uh, we know about the transgender ban when you know Trump and Pence um, essentially announced that they were going to seek to ban transgender people from the military. Uh, you know there was the story last fall, the New York Times story in which it was revealed that the administration has been working uh, to introduce a rule that would seek to erase transgender people completely from federal civil rights protections and just pretend that we don't exist, essentially. Um, so all of the you know progress that's been made by the federal government would be wiped out by this uh, proposed regulation that they're working on.
0: The Pentagon's new policy for transgender service members goes into effect today.
2: Announced by tweet last year saying he wanted to ban transgender military
0: service. The new regulation keeps transgender troops from serving openly. It also blocks troops from
2: receiving care if they transition to another gender.
0: On Thursday, the Justice Department filed a brief to the Supreme Court arguing federal law does not protect transgender
2: workers from certain types of discrimination. The Department of Health and Human Services is considering defining gender as quote, a biological immutable condition determined by genitalia at birth. And this is one that is likely to draw some serious legal challenges in the months to come.
1: I mean, I, it's terrifying. And I talk to other trans people. They're terrified. They, they talk about, uh, you know, the, what it could look like over the next five to 10 years if, if Trump stays in power. Or if someone like Trump stays in power, Um, this this is going to get really bad if we are not focused on holding them accountable and making sure that their hatred is articulated for uh, folks in power and especially for the media, who to this day still seems, you know, confused or at least a little ignorant of what they're doing. Um, I, I understand it's a busy media cycle all the time. Yeah. uh, So there's a lot of noise in the background, but I feel like even now, very smart reporters will email me to ask, Hey, you know, I've been, I've been told that, you know, Trump is anti-LGBTQ, but I haven't seen much. Could you maybe do a timeline for me? And I want to pull my hair out when I get those requests because Trump has been anything but subtle. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. You don't have to look that hard.
1: Um, it's pretty bad it's really, really bad. But here's what makes me hopeful. Uh, we have more transgender people elected to office than ever before. I know. It's um, such an
0: interesting sort of dichotomy what's going on in this country right now, because on the w- there's never been more awareness, right? And almost mm-hmm. in a certain realm, um, acceptance. But also, I feel like there's never been as much ignorance, and, and bigotry. I want to talk a little bit about the – or more about the military ban because I feel like you're in such a unique position having served in the military to sort of reflect on this, especially when you think about the fact that there have been uniformed military leaderships that have confirmed under oath before the Senate that trans troops have served without any problems whatsoever. So where do you think this is coming from?
1: That's exactly right. Uh, last year, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand uh, was uh, you know presiding over the Senate Armed Forces Committee and asked every service chief uh, of the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, uh, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, um, all of all the branches. Uh, she asked them all if there were any issues whatsoever with transgender service members serving openly and to a person they said they had heard of none and encountered none. Uh, so the ban had basically had no effect on military unit cohesion or readiness um and it goes so much beyond it goes so far beyond that too i mean there was there's an open letter that was written last year by 56 retired uh, generals and admirals saying as much that not only would there be no effects of open transgender service but that banning transgender service members would have a significant effect on national security uh, that it would take out highly qualified individuals uh, where the military had already invested in them, and it would enable further discrimination in a wider American society, right? So you have military leadership, like the best of the best, the folks who, you know, have four stars on their shoulders, uh, know better than anyone what it means to serve in the military, telling Kirsten Gillibrand that this this ban is, you know, basically uh, uh, ridiculous um, and has no uh, no need whatsoever, Um And yet uh, we have Donald Trump and Mike Pence and his acolytes who ignore the advice of military professionals, budget analysts, medical professionals, and not to mention a majority of the American people by saying uh, that the ban is needed when it clearly isn't.
2: Honor, integrity, honesty. There is nothing about this ban that promotes any of these values. Instead, transgender people are being forced to deny who they are in order to keep serving this country, which is a disgrace. This is abominable for a president to attack his own troops only on the basis of who they are. They are sacrificing their lives every day, and trans people across this country sacrifice their lives every day for their fellow neighbors. One of our
1: national institutions will be turning back the clock On equality, shutting its doors to people who have already proven their ability to do the job. Everyone counts. And that if you are willing and able to wear the uniform to defend our country, defend our freedom, then you should have the honor to serve. As a military veteran and proud transgender woman, the Trump administration's attempted ban on transgender people in the military hits home for me. It's personal. For over three years, I carried caskets in Arlington National Cemetery. I folded American flags for loved ones. I ceremoniously unloaded transfer cases of the remains of our fallen warriors in uniform, being carried home from Iraq and Afghanistan to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. Every casket and transfer case I carried was covered by an American flag, every single one. And that is all I remember about any of them. I never knew their race. I never knew their religion or education or birthplace. I didn't know their political party or who they voted for. I didn't know what music they liked or their guilty pleasure movie or what they did with their friends on the last Saturday night in their hometown before shipping out to war. I'll never know the names of their parents and spouses and children. I'll never know the intimate details of their personal lives. I'll never know who they loved and how they saw themselves in the world. All I know about those I carried was that they died in selfless service and they wore the flag of this country to the grave. It's it's just ridiculous. I mean, there's nothing. This doesn't affect anyone else, you know. My gender identity affects only me. Exactly. And, that's it. um, and it's just it's so tragic to think about the kids who watch this going on and are are and you know dealing with the same internal struggles I was dealing with. Uh, and we're not just talking about um, you know we're talking about kids across the spectrum in all classes, all races, all backgrounds who have that same feeling of dysphoria. Don 't know how to deal with it and they see the commander-in-chief the the so-called President of the United States openly going after transgender people and saying that we don't deserve to be recognized in society let alone have rights well this I is, mean it's absurd
0: this is exactly why I think the Equality Act is so important I think it's so important for young people to uh, that we, we've got to we got to fight for this
2: Throughout my life, I've seen firsthand the struggles that many in my community have faced in achieving the American dream. The right to live freely without fear of persecution or discrimination is one many in the LGBTQ community felt was an impossibility for so long. The fact that we're here today about to vote on this legislation, which has the bipartisan support of 241 members of the House, is in and of itself an achievement. And it was not easy to get here. It was only four short years ago that the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, finally allowing members of the LGBTQ community to marry in every state. Don't ask, don't tell was the law of the land until six years ago, and today the Trump administration is forcing the men and women in our armed forces back into the closet and taking steps to target the LGBTQ community in a variety of ways. The forces working against progress are strong, but together we are stronger. We've made great strides in fighting for LGBTQ rights under law, but make no mistake, There are many people, including in this administration, who are actively working to undermine our hard-fought gains. And that's why it's so significant that we have such strong and diverse support for the Equality Act. And I don't just mean 241 bipartisan co-sponsors in the House. Look at the 47 bipartisan sponsors in the Senate, the more than 200 businesses in every state in the country who have endorsed the bill, and the dozens of associations, advocacy groups, civil rights groups, and faith groups that back it. The Equality Act has the support of a majority of the American people in every state. Let that sink in. In every single state in the country, the American people think that it's time to protect the LGBTQ community. There is nothing more central to the idea of America, nothing that has contributed more to the exceptionalism of our country and the prosperity of America than the, than the guarantee of equal protection of the law for every single American. Can you give us an
0: overview of the act?
1: Yes. OK, so um the, the thing that a lot of folks don't know uh, is that although we've passed same-sex marriage or although the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, in 30 states, you can still be fired for being gay, you can be refused housing for being gay, you can be denied uh, basic services for being gay or transgender or lesbian or bisexual or queer. Um, and it's the reality that we lack widespread federal protections Beyond marriage for the LGBTQ community, and to give you a sense of that, if I drive from San Francisco to New York um, cross country, my rights or the uh, the rights that I am entitled to, depending on what uh, city or or state I'm in at the time, will change dra- dramatically. I mean, very dramatically. So I, you know, within within you know two hours, I could drive to um, a state that. Uh, in which it's completely legal to fire me for being transgender, or fire someone for being gay or lesbian or queer or bisexual. Um, and I think it's it's so so strange that most of the American people don't understand this or they don't know about it. They don't know that their uh, that their gay friend or that their gay relative or that their gay parent or child can literally be fired by their employer in 30 states for being gay. It's insane. Um, and so, what the Equality Act would do is ensure federal protections across the board for LGBTQ people so that it would no longer be legal to discriminate against someone for being LGBTQ. Um, this used to be called the Employment on Discrimination Act. Uh, now it 's been morphed into something that's far more far more broad, uh, and that it not only demonstrates uh, or excuse me it not only addresses employment. It also, uh, you know, addresses housing, uh, credits, education. I mean, this is
0: so vital. This is so important.
2: Fifty years after the LGBTQ Americans took to the streets outside of New York's Stonewall Inn to fight against harassment and hate, we take pride in the progress we have forged together. Our founders in their great wisdom wrote in our beautiful preamble of the, of the blessings of liberty— which were to be the birthright of all Americans. To bring our nation closer to the founding promise of liberty and justice for all, we today pass the Equality Act and finally fully end discrimination against LGBTQ Americans. The Equality Act has the support of a majority of the American people in every state. Let that sink in. In every single state in the country, the American people think it's time to protect the LGBTQ community. There is nothing more central to the idea of America, nothing that has contributed more to the exceptionalism of our country and the prosperity of America than the the guarantee of equal protection of the law for every single American. And they support this bill all across this country because it makes sense, it's common sense. It adds sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes through existing civil rights law, ensuring that the LGBTQ community enjoys the same protections as everyone else Nothing more and nothing less. On this vote, the yeas are 236. The nays are 173. The bill is passed.
0: So what can people do?
1: They need to call their senators and they need to call Mitch McConnell and demand that it be put up for a vote. What's unfortunate is that, you know, nationwide, states are introducing more and more anti LGBTQ legislation. In Tennessee, since the beginning of the year, uh, members of the legislature there have Republican members, I should say, have introduced 12 anti LGBTQ bills to be considered. Wow. Uh, And these range from basic bathroom bills to uh, making it legal for businesses to discriminate against LGBTQ people. It kind of runs the full gamut of civil rights for LGBTQ folks. Um, here's one thing that I think is very important for people to note. This is not just on the federal level and people can have a very direct impact at the local level. So if you go to your city council, for example, and you say to your city council person, look, I think that our city or our town needs a non-discrimination ordinance or law to ensure that any LGBTQ people who are living in our community are not discriminated against. And there are hundreds of cities in in, in in states that are, I would say, overall anti-LGBTQ, that have passed laws and ordinances like these that protect LGBTQ people. Just, just ordinary folks who go to their city council or their city leadership and make that happen. And that's something every, you know, all of us can do. I think people think that
2: what
0: they can do will not make a difference. I really do. I think people... I think people just put, throw their hands up and are aware and want to make a difference. But I don't think that they think their voice will make a difference. And I think, you know, you people like you that come forward, give them the strength to see that they can make a difference. And I think it's so vital.
1: And and it is. I mean, and people like you as well, people who stand up and, and make sure that, uh, you know, it's known that. Folks who have, you know, even the slightest influence um, in their communities or even their households can make an enormous difference by speaking out. Um, You know, here's the truth about D.C. The members of Congress who receive your phone calls and your emails and all that, they actually read those. Their staff reads those. And and so if, you know, you have, you know, 2,000, 3,000 people who call into a congressional office and say, hey, we think it's really bad that in your district— LGBTQ people are being discriminated against, or you know, racial you know racial profiling is going on, or um, you know, there's some environmental problem. Members of Congress pay attention to that because those are their constituents. It's a really good barometer of the anger and uh, uh, expression of need in those districts. So when you make a phone call, believe me that uh, when I say that it does matter, it absolutely matters. In fact, I would say that a phone call into Congress matters far more than voting. And you should definitely vote, right? You should absolutely, you know, uh, without a doubt vote. But a but a call to your member of Congress is 10 times more powerful, makes a direct plea, uh, and insists that they know that this is, you know, what you as a constituent want to see from your district.
0: Well, I think they've set it up so that we forget that they work for us. That's right. And And they like it like that. Um, What is your definition of American values? And has that changed from before you've come out to after?
1: Oh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. I think since I was a kid, American values meant, well, you know, the one word freedom, right? But then what does freedom mean? And freedom to me means that everyone, regardless of who they are, can live out their lives in an authentic and open way, without fear of discrimination, or reprisal, or a lack to basic human necessities. Um, that no one uh, is denied healthcare. That no one is denied quality education, or a living minimum wage, um, and that no one, when expressing an opinion on the state of the world, will you know have the government ba- government bear down on them um, for not. Uh, uh, basically agreeing with whoever is in power, right? That's freedom to me. Here's the thing, though. ever Ever since I came out, freedom also means the ability to blend in, which you wouldn't. I, I, I guess I just didn't consider it enough before I came out. But interesting. When, when when I came out as trans, I immediately, you know, I felt very comfortable in my own skin, uh, way more comfortable than I've ever felt in the closet. But what I noticed is that, you know, I no longer blend in. Um, the only places I ever blend in are in queer spaces. So if I go to a queer bar or, you know, in, in my own workplace, you know, the human rights campaign, I I don't, you know, no one notices me. If I'm out on the street um, or walking, you know, to the metro, even in a very progressive city like D.C., everyone takes notice because they see that that's a trans woman. And it made me think of the number of times that, you know, we've seen entitlement or privilege expressed at the expense of people of color or folks with disabilities or women in general. Um, and I feel like American values should mean being aware of privilege, right? Be- being aware of your own privilege and the privilege that's lacking in the lives of other people and how it affects them negatively. You know there's always there's always two narratives with civil rights. There's the legal narrative and there's the cultural narrative, right? Um, which which complicates things. You know, in DC, the le- the legal narrative says that I can go into any restroom I want to, and uh, it's it's legal for me to use the women's That's restroom right. because I am a woman, right? That's right. The cultural narrative is a lot different. The cultural narrative says that if I go into you know um, a, a busy store uh, where there are a lot of kids. Um, I know that I'm running a risk of getting into a confrontation if I use the women's restroom, because our culture has not progressed f- nearly enough for you know trans people to feel comfortable in every space in public, even if there are legal protections. Right. It's almost it's almost it's almost uh, relieving when I know uh, the spaces that it's probably it's it's a probably good uh, a good idea to stay away from those. Um, whereas you know I know spaces where I know i 'll be comfortable and affirmed if I go into them, and that 's hard for people to understand, uh, to accept or understand because we, we get we 've gotten so used to uh, legal victories happening um, that we think that once a legal victory happens, the fight is over right and the fight is honestly never over. It is a constant process of recognizing uh, where privilege holds supreme and our responsibility to dismantle it.
2: We be a nation where there's only one way to love, only one way to look, and only one way to live? Or we be a nation where everyone has the freedom to live openly and equally? A nation that's stronger together.
1: I would love to live in a society that doesn't have the concept of gender. That sounds like heaven. But we don't. We're given a binary. Male or female. Boy or girl. Man or woman. It's a system and chosen for you. Society mocks people who fall a little outside that binary shames those who fall a lot outside of it, and isolates those who fall entirely outside of it. And all who color outside the lines, regardless of their distance, are vulnerable to discrimination and bodily harm. That's why we defend free speech and advocate for political prisoners and condemn the persecution of women or religious minorities or people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or
2: transgender. We do these things not only because they are the right thing to do, but because ultimately they will make us safer.
0: What does it mean to be an ally?
1: Oh, oh.
0: Like, what would make me or someone the best ally for the trans and LGBTQ community?
1: I, and I will expand that to say allyship for also because um, you're, you're 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 focused quite rightly in our conversation on LGBTQ rights, but I think this is good advice for everybody on issues of race, disability, etc i've I have struggled as an ally um, because it's not easy. Um, there's no handbook for allyship. And the thing that I've had to come to accept is that being a good ally means embracing discomfort.
0: Yes. And your own Looking, stu- and your own stupidity almost
1: Yes, yeah, right? that's exactly right. Our own stupidity. You're absolutely right because there are moments when you know, it's extremely uncomfortable um to be in a space or be in a conversation and those are the moments that I've come to recognize as the best moments because that's when I know that growth is is present like there's an opportunity for growth present in those moments when we realize we're uncomfortable and it didn't used to be that way for me you know it used to be that I'd be uncomfortable and I'd be like well I really don't want to do this anymore because it's just it's it's not very comfortable and it's taken a while for me to recognize those places where when I'm uncomfortable, that means I've messed up or or that means that I don't know something. And it's a great opportunity to learn something and grow as a person. Embracing discomfort is the best thing you'll ever do as an ally, hands down. I love that. You know,
0: that discomfort comes from our own bullshit, our own insecurity about the moment, which if you allow yourself to feel that insecurity, it almost means you're already an ally. And I think for me, true allyship is being able to recognize that half the time you need to hand over the megaphone um, Mm -hmm. and amplify the voices that need to be amplified um, because no one knows better than the people that are in that community. That's very well said. Whatever the community is that we're fighting for.
1: And also, I think the one one other thing, and I I know we have to end this soon, but the, the one thing that always sticks out to me is pain and recognizing where pain exists because it's so hard to go into an uncomfortable space and someone might get nasty with you and you have to realize that, Oh yeah, there's, there's pain present in this space and being cognizant of that makes it easier to create understanding. The more that we recognize the pain that's in other people and the pain inside ourselves uh, and allow space for that is, is really helpful.
0: So much of that. And what we've talked about is really comes down to empathy and I, I am so disenchanted – if anything, I am disenchanted the most about the fact that we in this country have steered so far away from this idea of put yourself in their shoes. Uh And I don't know how we got to that point where it's all about – it's a very isolationist mentality of I, me, mine and everything that I can't – identify with or, or relate to is not worth my time. And to me, that's the most heartbreaking part about where we are right now is this idea that we've lost of put yourself in their shoes. What does it feel like To be in their shoes, to feel like they don't belong or to feel um, like they've come here for a better life and were put in detention. Like what does that feel like to be that person? And I think if we allow ourselves that vulnerability, we're going to want to help. How could we not want to help? And so I hope that we can get back to that place and – I, I just want to finish by asking you is there anything that you go back to when you're feeling a sense of loss or despair that brings you hope
1: yes um, Woodrow Wilson's first inauguration that day uh, you know usually presidents would kind of you know arrive at Union station to a big throng a huge crowd and that day the entire crowd was uh, on Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania Avenue for this enormous march uh, for women's rights. Uh, Alice Paul, um, uh Melba, IDB Wells, a number of prominent women uh, in America were marching down Pennsylvania Avenue for the right to vote. And I think about that day and those those thousands of women surrounded by literally tens of thousands of men who, you know, wound up beating them with nightsticks, uh, putting many of them in the hospital. And the fact that those women got up the next day and just kept doing it, just kept protesting. Yep. Now, they knew that they weren't going to get the right to vote that year. They knew that there, it was likely they would not see a woman in Congress, uh, let alone a woman president. And yet they still marched. And I got to say, like, I would not be standing here talking to you were it not for women like Sarah McBride or Janet Mock or Laverne Cox or Marsha P. Johnson all of these trans women who came before me uh, to make the path easier for me. And so when, yes, when things get really, really hard, when I get really uh, depressed or, or anxious um, and I have a bad day, I try to think about all the bad days they had and how they got through it so that I could sit here in my full-on authenticity and, and be able to, you know, just live, just live as a person.
0: In a memo made public, the Department of Health and Human Services pushed to define gender as being restricted to a person's genitalia at birth in an act of open hostility against transgender, intersex, and gender nonconforming people. Aligning the legal definition of sex with one's birth genitalia, complete with DNA testing to confirm makes it clear that the Trump administration intends to continue to roll back rights and protections for TGNC and intersex people. But they won't stop there. The administration is framing it as scientific, a way to define gender on a biological basis that is clear, grounded in science, objective, and administrable. But the Trump administration, which has consistently minimized and denied the impact of climate change, doesn't care about science. In a system that puts cis men above all others, this dangerous policy proposal will create a further caste system with TGNC people at the bottom. Title IX was created to ensure that we wouldn't experience discrimination on the basis of our sex. It's provided opportunities for women to play sports in schools and universities and protected us from discrimination by organizations that receive federal funding. While never implemented in a way that created true parity for women in sports, it provided a framework and accountability for schools to include girls and women to participate at all levels of their education. I'm grateful for Title IX, and all American women should be too. It is incredibly important to me that my son and daughter are growing up at a time when girls and boys can all participate in athletics without fear of discrimination based on their gender. Title IX has been widely interpreted by courts to include gender identity, and within that, to be inclusive of transgender people. That's not just an Obama-era interpretation either. When the Obama administration offered policy guidance around fluid interpretations of what constituted gender identity, it was in line with what courts were already ruling. The changes proposed in the Trump administration's cruel memo threatened to undo generations of already too slow progress. If gender is defined solely by birth genitalia, Non-discrimination protections will vanish for TGNC people, everyone who doesn't fit neatly into the inadequate boxes of male and female, as determined under the Trump administration's unscientific metric. Students at public schools who are transgender won't be protected by Title IX in the same way their cisgender peers are TGNC employees at federally funded organizations won't have the non-discrimination protections that Title IX provides. And this is especially concerning because transgender people already experience higher rates of economic instability and job insecurity. Two factors which already create significant vulnerabilities for this community. This is an attack on the very humanity of transgender people designed to create a limbo in which our transgender friends and neighbors will be forced to exist. It's a politically driven assault coming from an administration that has already tried and succeeded in some cases to roll back protections for transgender people. It is especially important that those of us who identify as feminists Come to the support of the transgender community. My trans sisters experience even more pronounced, specific, and cruel iterations of the discrimination that all women face, and the TGNC people face a dimension of societal exclusion and institutional neglect that is the responsibility of each of us to correct. Our struggles are not separate from the struggles of the TGNC community. They are bound up in each other, intertwined. When we support each other, when we fight together, we can bring about change. There is weakness in the patriarchy. There is fear in this administration and in those bureaucrats and lawmakers who push these harmful policies Fear of losing power. There is cowardice in the face of empowered citizens demanding equality for all who call America home. There is power in the voting booth. We have the power. When we stand together in solidarity and exercise that power, those weak and scared and few will tremble and their wrongs will begin to be righted. I call on each of you to stand with me, side by side, with the trans community. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Alison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windisch. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.
2: Sorry, not sorry.